Over the next four weeks, we're going to be building in anticipation uh, towards Advent, and th- or Advent is the season of building anticipation for uh, Christ's birth. And so uh, tonight we start with the word hope, and um, hope, peace, love, and joy are the four words that make up a typical Advent celebration, and these four words are used uh, frequently both in and outside of the church during uh, Christmas season. You don't have to flip through the channels long or watch more than three minutes of a Hallmark movie uh, to understand that these are four things that characterize how we all talk and process and understand uh, this great moment of anticipating Christ's birth. And so our aim and our goal over the next four weeks is to see how each of these words, hope, peace, love, and joy, help us understand the overall story of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation, and how each word finds more of its fulfillment in the birth of Christ. Hope, peace, love, and joy do not find their beginning with the birth of Christ. They're actually words that characterize the entirety of the narrative of Scripture from the opening words in Genesis 1 to the closing verses of Revelation. And so what my aim and my goal as we walk through these together is to not just pick one verse and then go for 45 minutes about what hope means out of one verse. The goal is to be a little shorter. You're probably thinking, amen. But be a little shorter and kind of trace these words from the Old Testament up until Christ's birth. And then you'll see these same words are going to appear in the spring when we walk through seven weeks of Lent in anticipation of Christ's death and resurrection. These same four words are going uh, to show up. And so while we live this side of the cross, and while we live this side of the resurrection, we're not anticipating the resurrection just yet. You gotta keep coming back. We'll get there. And so I don't want us to push too far forward to miss the anticipation and the thrill of Christ's birth. And so that's our aim and our goal. Tonight, though, our focus is on hope. Our hope as believers isn't a flimsy hope that is bent and twisted by our ever-changing circumstances. No, as believers, our hope is firm and secure. As William B. Nelson Jr. says, hope is the proper response to the promises of God. So our hope is based on the promises of God and based on the truthful character of God's nature. So much of what the world offers as hope is left to chance. It's left to good fortune. It's left to anything but the concrete promises of God that are rooted in his character and in his nature. And our hope is built on and secured by the fact that God isn't a liar and God isn't one to not fulfill his promises. And so our hope can be secure. Let's pray. Jesus, tonight we are thankful that you are our hope. More than something that resides outside of us our hope lives inside of us by the spirit of god as romans 5 1 through 5 says your love has been poured into us by the spirit the spirit resides in us and gives us hope and confidence and joy and love and peace and all of the attendant attributes that make up the christian life and so we give you thanks for that We pray that tonight as we look at hope from the scriptures that we would leave with a joyful anticipation of celebrating Christ's birth and all the hope that it offers us. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Hope 
doesn't appear when Jesus first arrives in the manger in Bethlehem. Hope actually is one of the first attributes, one of the first words to characterize our faith that we see in all of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, hope appears right after the fall of Adam and Eve. You have the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden where Eve gets into a dialogue with the serpent. Satan in serpent form convinces her to take and eat of the fruit that's on the tree. She does. She gives some to Adam who is there with her. Sin enters the world. And then in Genesis 3, after that has happened, God comes walking through the garden in the cool of the day and he's calling out to Adam and Eve, wondering where they are because they enjoyed close fellowship with him in the garden and they're hiding and they're aware that they're naked and they've covered themselves. And when they finally answer God, God calls Adam and Eve and the serpent before him and he walks through the punishment that is going to accompany their own sinfulness and so at the end of genesis 3 in the opening part of genesis 3 as he's winding down his declaration of punishment over the serpent he concludes with these words in 315 i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel here is the first mention of hope in the scriptures here is the first glimmer of the coming Christ. Here is hope in the midst of cosmic treason. Here is hope for life when death was justified. Here is hope issuing forth from the heart of a father who even while being sinned against is moving towards his rebellious and estranged children in rescuing love. Hope finds its beginning on the hills of man's greatest tragedy. Hope arrives on the scene not after man and woman have had a chance to prove that they're worthy of being rescued. Hope is issued, hope is called forth by God out of a deep resolve from his own character and his own nature. The only thing that causes God to utter those words in Genesis 3.15, the only way we have hope is if God decides that God is going to do something of his own making and in his own power and in his own might to restore us to a right relationship with him. And so on the hills of our greatest tragedy comes the greatest hope we could ever imagine. There was the promise given by God, and it is vague, and we only understand it because we live this side of the cross and this side of a fuller understanding of who Christ is and what he accomplished. But even there in that moment, God was preparing a way for us to be reconciled and redeemed and restored into a loving relationship with him. But if you read your Bibles honestly, from Genesis 3.15 on, there are ample moments where it appears that the hope promised in the garden is going to be completely overran by the utter sinfulness and the apathy of God's people. 
from Jacob's deceitfulness in Genesis 27 to the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness in Exodus 16 to the lack of faith concerning the promised land in Numbers 13 through the dark ages of the judges and those were the dark ages. It appears that all hope is lost and you've barely got into the Old Testament. By the time you close the, the end of the book of Judges, you've got to wonder just how much hope is left for these people. What is God really going to do? Kings rise and kings fall. David ascends to the king, to the role of king, and if but for a moment, he redirects the nation's gaze towards the far horizon where they look longingly and expectantly and hopefully for an anointed one, a deliverer, a messiah. But the years are long and the sins many between David ascending to the role of king and the birth of the son of David in Bethlehem. And in those intervening years, God commissions the prophets to call the nation of Israel back to himself. Mingled together in the book of Lamentations is both pending judgment for the people's sins and hope that they will be restored after suffering their punishment. Lamentations 3, 16 through 24 reads as follows. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The writer of Lamentations gives us the seesaw experience of our own walk with Christ. In a moment, there is the remembrance of everything that we have done and the just punishment that we feel should be ours and when we consider what we deserve when we consider maybe some of the consequences we've had to suffer for our own sinfulness we can be brought to a point where we join with the lamenter in forgetting what happiness is and we can find ourselves with a perished endurance and with a perished hope from the lord i love lamentations because of the honesty of the writer the honesty that characterizes most of our walks with Christ in this room tonight. That we may leave here and feel a certain closeness and a certain emerging hope in our hearts. And then later tonight or tomorrow or maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday, there will be sin that rises up in us. And we will feel in those moments as if our endurance and our hope are all but gone. But then notice what he does just a few verses later. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And what does he call to mind? He does not call to mind his own great achievements. He does not call to mind a balanced scale where his good works have balanced out his bad works, and he is now somehow ahead in the game of cosmic scorekeeping with God. Now his hope is restored when he remembers that the steadfast love of the Lord 
never ceases. His hope is restored when he remembers that the Lord's mercies never come to an end, that they are new every morning. No, his hope is restored when he remembers the great faithfulness of his God. The great faithfulness, the great promise, the great hope that God first spoke in Genesis 3.15, even in the midst of the ruin of the city, is still alive in the hearts of those who are God's people. Because they call to mind the character and the unchanging nature of the God who has loved them and the God who has called them. And so we join with the lamenter in feeling often as if our hope has perished and then being brought back to remember from Scripture itself that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and His mercies are new every morning. And then Ezekiel, a little later, is going to push hope forward yet again when he prophesies about the coming day when God will remove his people's hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh, a heart energized by his spirit, not calcified in sin, a heart capable of loving God and loving others. And this is what Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 36, 22 through 32. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations." It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Ezekiel's words are stark and harsh, but they are infused with great hope for the people of God. And just like the lamenter is brought back to hope in God by remembering the steadfast love of God and his new mercies every morning and his great faithfulness. So when we read Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel 36, we find our own hope encouraged and restored because we are reminded of this truth. That God acts not primarily for us, but for the sake of his holy name. Our hope, our hope that began in Genesis 3.15 and has been brought topsy-turvy through all of the stories of the Old Testament, all the history of God's people up until this point in Ezekiel, our hope is always to be centered in the fact that God will act for the cause and for the purpose of His own name. 
If your hope is dependent on God acting for your name, you will be sorely disappointed in how you perceive God acting in your life. But if, like Ezekiel and like other faithful believers down through the ages, you can remember that the hope we have stems from God's desire to vindicate his name among the nations through redeeming sinners like us, then you will have a secure, firm hope to grab onto regardless of what your circumstances are. I mean, Ezekiel prophesies this when the nation is in exile. They are not living their best life now when Ezekiel makes these grand promises of what God is going to do with his people. But God knew that the remedy wasn't just to give them the land back. And the remedy wasn't just to make sure they didn't experience famine again. God knew that the only way their hope would be secure, the only way that they would grasp the fullness of the hope he was offering is if they understood that he was going to do what only he could do, which is give them a new heart that was capable of loving God and obeying his commands. So not only is God committed to acting for the sake of his own name, but God is committed to displaying that through lives like ours where he comes in and in grace removes a heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh and gives us the ability to love and obey his commands and to love and serve others. And so even in the midst of exile, as the Old Testament is in the process of winding down and the people of God are facing the direct consequences for their sinfulness, God still through the prophets offers But after the prophets speak their final words, history continues its march forward. The grand promise of a new heart capable of love and obedience fades. As time passes, the last vestiges of hope are reduced to a faint, almost indiscernible echo in the hearts and minds of God's people. Then, on an otherwise ordinary day in Nazareth, an otherwise unremarkable town in Israel, an angel of the Lord visits an ordinary man named Joseph. Matthew records the angel's words as follows in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The hope promised in Genesis 3.15 is on the way. The hope all but forgotten through all of the sin-filled years and half-hearted repentance of God's people through the Old Testament. The hope that if it were up to the people of God to merit would have been lost long ago. The hope that only a God could see through history to this point is now arriving and his name is Jesus. In that moment, all the hope of all the ages past rushed in to the present here at last is the snake crusher here is god making good on his promise here is the hope for messiah here is hope 
for Christmas. When the angel appears to Joseph on that otherwise ordinary day in Bethlehem, and he says, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. After 400 years of silence, after 400 years of questioning and wondering where God was and what God was doing, 400 years of being back in the land but having a silent God not speaking through dreams or visions or prophets, after 400 years, the first words spoken are words of hope. And so tonight, as we build in anticipation of celebrating Christ's birth in just a few short weeks, we celebrate the hope that is ours in Jesus We celebrate the hope that is ours in the one who came to save his people from their sins. And if you're here tonight and you're a believer, that means that you could reread Matthew 1, 20 and 21 and you could read it like this. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save, insert your name there, from their sins. There's hope for all of us. Because we trust, we believe, And we love a God who will always make good on his promises. Let's pray.